Hello, everyone. Welcome back to this, our fifth episode uh, on the uh, loosely tracking the SDA quarterly on uh, the Three Angels messages. My name's Cameron. And I'm Luke. And I'm Lachlan. Great to have you back, Luke. We've commented that you went in the snowy mountains. Was it as cold as I suggested to our listeners that it may have been? It was colder. <laughs> Fantastic. Sounds good. Uh, Ken's not with us, uh, but he should be joining us for next week. Um, <clears throat> this week's lesson is on the good news of the judgment. And uh, that um, sort of tension, because it is acknowledged in the lesson that the, that phrase seems to be one of tension. Um, we don't often associate judgment as being good news. And this is sort of unpacked, isn't it, like in the first in, um day's lesson yeah it's unpacked in a way which i would like to actually unravel a little bit because it seems to me um that that there's there's a lack of clarity about this so the good news of the judgment makes it sound like it's somehow a good thing the the opening um introduction to this week's lesson does point out that the judgment is lacking here and now in other words calling back to the the idea the, the indignancy that we feel when, you know, frauds and cheats get away with it. And when really good, kind, loving people die young of cancer, these sorts of things, we feel a sense of unfairness at times uh, with reality. And we wish that it could be rectified. And the, the lesson doesn't specifically call that out, but it refers vaguely to it by, by sort of pointing out the judgment that is so lacking here and now. So that's an interesting element. I'm putting some words into the lesson's mouth, but I'm picking that up. And yet, literally a sentence later, um, after, after pondering Paul's words in Romans, so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God, the lesson says, scary thought, isn't it? Having to give an account of ourselves before God. Scary thought... To me, they've they've tripped up the good news, and then um, it sort of finishes off by saying, you know, the, we'll look at what happens. Um, we explore the deeper themes of judgment. We'll look at what happens when God's faithful people themselves face the inevitable judgment to come. And that bit of it, it seems to me, it's very very laborious to try and pitch as good news. Uh, look, there's a episode in Adrian Plass where um, there's a visiting preacher. Uh, at, at Adrian Plass's church. This is in, I think, the first Sacred Diary. And he's not heard this preacher before, but his son Gerald has. And he says, Gerald describes this person as having the uh, spiritual gift of discouragement. And um, <laughs> and um, the person starts his sermon by putting a chair in the centre of the stage and looking at them all with a, here's an idea you've not thought of before, sort of wide-eyed, um, hushed voice and says, now... Everyone, I want you to just imagine that Jesus is sitting in this chair. Jesus, Jesus himself is sitting in this chair. Wouldn't, wouldn't you all just want to hide and creep away and find a dark corner when you think of all the bad things that we've done? Each of us has done bad things and Jesus knows those things and he's sitting here right, he's right here in this chair. Wouldn't you just want to hide? And Adrian Plass says, uh, I tried, I really tried to, to feel those things, but I couldn't. I was just excited to see Jesus. I guess it shows I've got a long way to go. <laughs> isn't that, isn't that quite, quite? It's so good. It skewers right to the heart of the matter, doesn't it? Mm. So we've got to discuss this idea of judgment. Yeah, is it a scary thing to have to give an account of yourself? Um, if your supervisor at work says, "Hey, I want you to explain what you've been doing because I've had some complaints," it's a very demeaning process to, particularly. 
particularly if the people who've made complaints um, are not teachers who know the subject material. If you're a high school teacher, you often get complaints from parents or from one student. I had one student, a very well-meaning student, who uh, sent a message via their parents to the head of department, not to me, which is a bit irritating. Um, But this was, by and large, a a diligent and uh, very gentle student. I think she was just too shy to approach me, I think. There was no malice intended. But could I please teach physics in a way that used less diagrams? Hmm. Uh, Then you have to give an account to yourself and you have to talk to the head of science who has to field these jolly complaints. And he wants you to just do something so that the parents stop complaining. And you are trying to say to him, and you know that he knows that physics is full of diagrams, um, that that's just what it is. And then you're sitting there left trying to defend what you feel that you've done a good job, but people don't... And it's just an annoying circumstance. Um, the flip side is, um, like, uh, Leighton gets home from a really fun day at school mm-hmm. and you say, I picked him up from school the other day, which is a, a fun experience. And you say, oh, what did you do at school today? Ah, oh, well, and there's like six anecdotes in three minutes and it's, I did this and I did this and then we did this and it was super fun and we played this game and we... And the teacher did this and it was really funny and da 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 That's a really fun circumstance to give an account mm. of yourself. Mm. There's another element to this. As you were sharing those anecdotes, I thought of one that occurred to me at the end of last year. Um, I had a meeting. This was, a, again, a workplace, and I had a meeting with my sort of um, direct boss, the, the head of the School of uh, Information and Physical Sciences, that's maths and computing and physics at our university, And it was about um, a role that I'd been performing for that year. And I thought the meeting was going to be a kind of end of year review. Okay, how's it gone? What, you know, what, what support do you need? You know, whatever. And that, that assumption on my part meant that I was utterly unprepared for what the meeting really was, which was my boss essentially passing on that some people had been discontent with the way that I had performed this role. And that blindsided me so much. I was, I was, I was really irritated. And the thing that I was most irritated by was that the the school, and it turns out there was legitimate, re, there were external factors, there were reshuffling some of the organisational roles within our school, anyway. But what my what my boss was telling me was that that I was actually um, not going to be continuing in the role, or at least not necessarily. They were going to be reopening it for expressions of interest from other people, and I was polite and calm, I think. But I don't think I succeeded particularly well because internally I was re- I was almost livid. I was really wound up. And the thing I was wound up about was not having had an opportunity to give an account of myself, to give my account of, of the situation. Um, you know, I felt as if I had been effectively... Um, I'm still in the role, I think. (laughs) So it has turned out more or less okay. But at that moment in that meeting, I felt as if I had been relieved of this position on the basis of some critical comments from others who who had in fact not understood my position. That's that's, That's my perspective of it. And that I had not been approached to provide any sort of perspective from from my side. And and that left me feeling just really, really mad, really churned up. And I would have loved nothing more than the opportunity to have in a formal way been able to calmly provide an account of myself. Um, and <laughs> being, being denied that really did um, 
kind of wind me up. And so I suppose in that context, there was there was the possibility that that you know a clear opportunity for for open judgment for for the the ability to provide a a rebuttal of some kind uh, would definitely have been good news to me. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. Yeah. Well, this is one of the things Job says, isn't it? Job says, "I wish God would just come before me and let me say my piece." But it's unfair because he's God and I'm not. And uh, I can't tell him what I think of him. And this is not a court where we're taking turns. Mm. And, it's you know, where, where it's my turn. Well, yeah. Can, can we can we read from a couple of different translations just to really get a feel for it? I'll read from the New Living Translation. It's really just Revelation 14 verse um, 6 and 7 really is where, where we're focusing on here. Um, then I saw another angel flying through the sky, carrying the eternal good news to proclaim to the people who belong to this world, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Fear God, he shouted. Give glory to him, for the time has come when he will sit as judge. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. That's where we're, that's where in this particular um, season of the podcast, that's where we're entering this theme of judgment how's that rendered in other translations i am just going to look up the message because i know it's not a translation it's a well at least it is a translation but it is a translation by only one translator Uh, so let's call it a paraphrase um it's a translation in the sense that he did it from the original Mm. languages um uh the message says fear god give him glory his hour of judgment has come okay okay that's all it's 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 fairly standard. Worship the Maker of heaven and earth, salt sea and fresh water. Um, in in verse six, does it also have the the carrying the eternal good news, carrying the gospel? Is it, what is how does it render that? Um, he had an eternal message to preach to all who are still on earth. Oh, okay, so it doesn't it doesn't include the 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 sort of evaluation of the message as being good news. Because here's the here's the thing: we're we're slightly, if anything, um, taking taking issue with the lesson conflating judgment and good news and, and calling itself the good news of the judgment. And yet here in Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7, the angel is described as proclaiming the good news to the people who belong to the world, and yet his message when he speaks it is, fear God for the hour of his judgment has come. Yeah. Well, Locke, I have one particular aspect of this translation I'd like to run past you and Luke, and I'd be interested in Luke's opinion on this particularly. Um the message translates the start of verse 6 thus, I saw another angel soaring in middle heaven. Uh-huh. And I wondered I wondered what the connection was between middle heaven and middle earth. <laughs> uh, when you say middle heaven, I immediately think of um, controlled airspace just above class G. <laughs> right. <laughs> so perhaps a regularly scheduled commercial passenger flight is what the yeah, angel was doing I up see. there. <laughs> I I wonder, and it, I amaze myself, um, because this is the first time in however many hundred of episodes we've done this podcast that I've ever wondered this, but what is the lesson's opinion on what um, the good news of the judgment means? Because I know what my opinion is, and it's broadly the same as the one that you guys have outlined, so I won't repeat it um, unless I can think of something particularly brilliant um, by way of metaphor explanation. But I'm curious what they think is good news about the judge. They being the yeah. Let me let me share a few passages that I think might shed some light on this, and I feel like our discussion may end up being tangential to this. Um, 
I'm going to quote a few bits. Uh, the gospel and the judgment, both parts of the first angel's message, are inseparably intertwined. Were it not for the everlasting gospel, we would have no hope in the judgment. Um, so there's an oblique connection there, I suppose. Um, here, again, quoting the lesson. During this judgment, the unfallen worlds will see that God has done everything he can to save every human being. The judgment reveals God's justice and mercy. It says something about his love and his law. Um, jumping a little bit. The judgment is part of God's ultimate solution to the sin problem. In the great controversy between good and evil in the universe, God answered Satan's charges on the cross. But in the judgment, he reveals that he has done everything possible to save us. I think what the lesson is arguing on the on the broad platform of, of a very conventional Adventist great controversy sort of picture is that the judgment is good news because it's the only way to resolve the the sin problem. Like there's a quote from Ellen White, uh, Testimonies for the Church. I can't remember what day's lesson this is. What is it? It's uh, oh, it's only on Mondays. Um, and <clears throat> it it carries, I think, a fair bit of nuance. Um, the, uh, I'm quoting here from the lesson, which is quoting from Ellen White. Uh, the fact that the acknowledged people of God are represented as standing before the Lord in filthy garments should lead to humility. Um, so there's an implication here that the people are there in a saved state, but mm. haven't got there with filthy garments. Um, the more closely, um, indeed, uh, sorry, those who are indeed purifying their souls by obeying the truth will have a most humble opinion of themselves. The more closely they view the spotless character of Christ, the stronger will be their desire to be conformed to his image. Um, and the less will they see of pur purity or holiness in themselves. But while we should realize our sinful condition, we are to rely upon Christ as our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. We cannot answer the charges of Satan against us. Christ alone can make an effectual plea in our behalf. He's able to silence the accuser with arguments founded not upon our merits but on mm. his own that that statement does encapsulate a form of judgment which i think is good news mm. yes i don't i don't find myself disagreeing with any of that mm. well it's been a great discussion guys i guess we can... <laughs> no there's one more detail that we need yeah, to yeah. we do need to take uh we take some uh, on which there may be some contention um the lesson i've found one other p phrase that I, that i was looking for um with wording that, Cam, you talked in our first episode of this season about emotional recoil. This wording causes me to almost physically recoil. Um, again, I quote from the lesson study. Heaven's infinite, minute, exact, detailed records will be opened. Say those adjectives again, Locke. Yeah, heaven's infinite, minute, exact, detailed records will be opened. Wow. Sure, they didn't need all wow, of those. Wow, wow. Uh, that's such an amazing collection. I love the association of infinite and minute. That's a um, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. It suggests like that the the records are dense in a topological sense. Okay. Um if that helps. <laughs> it doesn't. Um, <laughs> it doesn't help. Well, the counting whole numbers are infinite, but there's gaps between them. True. Yeah. So so if something is infinite it doesn't mean it covers everything. Whereas, like, the fractions are dense. Between any fractions, there's more yeah, fractions. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so between any records, there's more records. Look, the, yeah, this this um, <laughs> phrasing in the lesson pamphlet uh, is very conventional Adventist thinking. And I, I, I'm reminded of a fascinating presentation that I once heard by an Adventist 
who is an accountant, an accounting expert who's lectured accountancy um, at university and who, who essentially contended that a lot of the early Adventist pioneers can be, can be understood very, very well through the eyes of accounting. Um, and in fact, their whole picture of judgment seems to be more informed by the principles of accountancy than it does by the principles of biblical scholarship and theology. And he proceeded to go on and talk about our, our Adventist pioneers' obsession with the records, um, the record keeping. Um, there was even a famous poem that was re reproduced multiple times um, in the Review and Herald. The, the poem was called The Ledger of Heaven, and it talks about a kind of... Um, an accounting ledger on which on which our actions were recorded. Debits and credits. Debits and credits, exactly. The whole idea of needing mm -hmm. to pray at the end of each day to forgive, ask forgiveness for all of that day's sins is exactly the idea of accountants needing to close the books, basically um, um, balance the register at the end of a day's trading. Um, it was a phenomenal presentation, really insightful. However, I, th I would like to contend that I, I think the lesson may actually have this one wrong. Uh, and it is possible that, that a broader element of, of Adventist history might actually have this one wrong. At the end of that sentence, heaven's infinite, minute, exact, detailed records will be opened. Open brackets. See Daniel 7 verse 10. Daniel 7 verse 10 is part of a sort of poetic expression. Daniel, as he... As I looked, right, he was thinking about the horns. Uh, there was before me another horn, a little horn. So Daniel 7 verse 8 was a little horn. 9, as I looked, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. Um, the NIV renders this as sort of almost poetry. Verse 10, a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated. The books were opened. So the books being opened are, are these, according to the lesson, are these infinite, minute, exact and detailed records. And of course, it's super natural. Um, sorry, those two words don't go nicely together because they make you think of supernatural. It is incredibly, un it is cre incredibly believable when you're picturing a, an all-powerful, all-knowing God. If God is indeed taking records about our every deed and action, then it is going to be infinite and minute and it's going to be exact and detailed. However, in Daniel 7, the pictures of judgment that occur, what is being judged? Who is being judged? And I refer you down specifically uh, to verse 26 and 27. When the court comes to order, I'm reading from the message, the horn will be stripped of its power and totally destroyed. Then the royal rule and authority and the glory of all kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the people of the high God. Their rule will last forever. This is the court that in verse 10 was seated. The books were opened, and the outcome of the judgment is a stripping of power from the little horn. Daniel 7 describes a judgment taking place in a court that is accusing and then taking action against the little horn. If, if, we, don't, if, we, are, if we are identifying ourselves as being the followers of God in the way of Jesus, then we're specifically identifying ourselves as trying to... Now, we, we notice in ourselves, if we're honest, beastly behavior, little hornly behavior. But that's exactly the thing that we are, we are distancing ourselves from. In, in, our, in our efforts to live in the way of Jesus, we are trying to align ourselves not with the horn, not with the beast. And I'm conflating slightly the horn, which is Daniel, and the beast, which is Revelation 14. And... <clears throat> 
Perhaps it's a bigger discussion whether I should do that, but we, we won't go into that in this, in this episode. I contend that Daniel 7 is absolutely not telling me anything about, um, what did the lesson describe it as? Um, we will look especially at what happens when God's faithful people themselves face the inevitable judgment to come. The judgment in Daniel 7 is not a judgment of God's yeah. faithful people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's, there is a larger problem with this idea of meticulous records upon which all questions will be resolved um, <clears throat> in a way that is indisputable by anyone. All parties concerned, once they read those books, will be satisfied. Now, we have various interpretations of books in various contexts here. We talk about the books being opened as judgment on God's people. We sometimes refer to books being opened as a judgment on God. We will have the chance to pour over mm. those books and see whether God's been fair. Um, to start, In with, other words, we will um, audit if God God's is accounting. not fair. Yeah, we'll audit. Yeah, if God if God is not trustworthy, then how can we be sure He hasn't cooked the books? So, <laughs> if if you assume that the books are trustworthy, you are taken as given that God uh. is trustworthy. Um, so there's a bit of circular logic there. But the other problem is that um, only a person who has never tried to resolve a dispute would assume that detailed records will solve the problem. Mm. Um, because, you know, if you have a fight in a playground um, and you get four people and you get a consensus from four independent witnesses about what someone said and you then confront them with it, you say, I've been told independently by four people that this is what you were doing in the playground. And the records are meticulous, infinite, something and something it wouldn't matter what the records are the person will say to you oh but it wasn't like that yeah um well or but there uh, was one is, other it, factor that you are not taking into consideration yeah 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 um uh you know we will be very very changed i mean i don't mean the people who are saved i mean the people who are not saved must be very very changed from what is typical human nature, if once the books are opened, they are satisfied. Mm. Um, there's something just a bit suspicious about that. On your on your comment, Locke, about um, about us having elements of the beast and the little horn and whatever all these images of, you know, the, the struggle which in the Old Testament is between God's people and the Amalekites and the other rites and the other rites. Uh, very quickly becomes a struggle within the nation of Israel in the book of Judges um, to a struggle within us as mm. people. And this is, this, is, I think, the, um, this is, I think, the only sense in which you can half, and it's not even a, it doesn't excuse in any sense the horrific stuff that is recorded in the Old Testament, but what is seen is a very vague and out-of-focus large-scale concept of good versus evil. Um, and it reaches a much truer perspective when it is seen as a struggle within us than as a struggle between a nation and another nation. Um, David sees this very strongly. And um, David uh, says, I've got two Psalms here. Uh, one of them is the end of Psalm 139. Um, and he, Psalms 139 is pretty self-righteous. Uh, he says, if only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? So this is God's... Um, sorry, David is, thinks he's pretty much firmly on God's side. But before signing off the psalm, he says this. 
Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, that is a fascinating way to tie off that psalm. Is Cam still here? Cam's audio glitched just before you separated. To me, it sounded like he might have switched to a different mic. Well, we're back, listeners, after a short delay at our end. Uh, Cam was in full flight sharing with us great wisdom and unfortunately dropped off completely from this Zoom call uh, with zero warning. Luke and I assumed it might be some battery going flat or other technical um, issue at his end. So we hung around and discussed some other things, uh, hoping that Cam might join us back. Um, In doing so, we've lost the train of thought uh, that we were at. So this is going to feel a little bit like a discontinuity. Uh, Cam has just messaged uh, to say that it was indeed his battery going flat. And um, given the the hour at which we're recording this he said well let's let he's he's asked us to continue um without him he he won't be able to join us back he's he's in his message expressed his closing thoughts um from from his example of, of king david and his thoughts are we don't need to wait for end times um if we really think judgment is good news then let's ask him to judge us right now and he refers to psalm 139 and that's a great thought so we're going to pick things up, and we're sorry that it represents somewhat of a discontinuity in, in the conversation. Um, I particularly want to return back to this idea of the judgment being a, a vindication. This is another phrase that is used. In fact, it's used in Daniel 7, um, the um, verse 22, which we skipped over. Until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And that, so so in Daniel 7, we have this poetic expression where the court was seated and the books were opened. And the then, then some verses later, the Ancient of Days pronounces judgment in favor of the holy people. And then in verse 26, the court will sit and the little horn's power will be taken away and completely destroyed. I want to contrast that picture with the way that Adventism so often pictures the judgment. And our lesson pamphlet, I've specifically focused in on a few of the phrases that so readily encapsulate this this standard approach, which is to vividly see the judgment as being even the, what does, um, the holy people. So the holy people of the Most High. I'm picking out that, that phrasing from Daniel 7. The judgment being even the holy people of the Most High, having to give account of their every deed and every action. And, and Luke, I'm, it seems to me there's a lot more obvious connection between judgment and good news. If judgment is indeed the um, vindication of God's holy people and the removal of power from a false and oppressive regime. Well, yeah, and I, think, I guess that's the, the, the most fundamental way that I can put it is that a, a fair judgment is always good news. You know, it's kind of a universal concept. Everybody is in favor of good judges that that apply the law fairly, um, whether they be human judges or uh, divine ones. And I think a fair judgment um, is a, is a good thing and good news, uh, even if it does mean punishment for the things you've done wrong, because that is also good for you. 
Yeah, that's an interesting thought. Um, if the judgment is fair. And, you know, uh, if Cam were here, uh, this would be a good time for him to bring up C.S. Lewis references um, on that topic because Lewis writes many good things about about the idea of, of, of um, you know, why judgment would be good news for someone who... who is deserving of punishment, and we know, you know, the wages of sin is death, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, etc. Um, uh, but there's also there's also Leaf by Niggle, which is a brilliant short story, kind of more or less on this topic. Mm. In in that he is sort, you know, the main character of that story is sort of punished, but for his own good. So it's the idea of redemptive mm. punishment, um, and uh, Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky is another excellent reference while I'm recommending reading material um, that that dwells on the theme. The main character of that story, um, to summarize, commits a murder, um, well, spends a great deal of time first rationalizing in his own mind the murder, um, commits it for pragmatic reasons, um, and in the, is, is then absolutely tormented by his own conscience until he is punished hmm. at which point his his redemption begins um but he has no rest and and no comfort and no relief until he is judged hmm. uh, and i think that is also a way that judgment can be good news uh, we didn't really get into the idea of well, yet yet well yeah there is the idea that the judgment means judgment of, of everybody and everything so it's 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 definitely the judgment of those unjust forces mm. and the inequalities um and and the the misery inflicted on others by self-interest um but it, it is also a judgment of us you know and i i'm scared to be judged because i have done wrong um well that's still good news uh and um it would have been nice if we could get more into that side of the topic i think uh but uh, seeing as we're out of time and out of cam, um, I'll just have to recommend the reading material instead. But I think, to me, this is part of what faith is. We know the character of God. We trust his judgment mm. will be fair and good. And loving. Regardless of what that means for us personally. Yeah. Um, and we take that on faith. Well, I have. I think there are a couple of pictures of judgment Um that have to be kept in mind to counterbalance the the sort of despair that can come when when so I, I think that a, a detailed a, a an overemphasis on what was it the infinite minute the the, the accounting side yeah yeah um, I, I think it I think it's an emphasis on the wrong side well what I think it does well. is it tends to shift the focus I know so I think it tends to shift the focus of the individual inward onto them and themselves. And it, it doesn't become a useful motivation to live as God's agent actively and outwardly. Um, and I th I, yes, that's my and concern. I, th I, think, I think it also draws attention away from the character of God as judge. Yeah. Right. Because it's focusing on the record keeping. Mm. But the record keeping is is the it's important. Mm. But it's it's the it's the um, what's the word I'm looking at? It's the prerequisite for judging is to have the information. It is not in and of itself the judgment. Mm. It's just the information required for the judgment. The judgment is done by you know because um, something which would be worth thinking about for our listener is 
the meaning of the word judge and judgment outside of a legal context, mm, mm. right? Because we have ideas like professional judgment yeah. or good judgment or wise judgment. Yeah. Um, judgment in the context of decision-making, mm. right? Um, and I think these are all really good things to consider. Uh, yeah, that's, that's right? a really valuable When you, when you say somebody has good judgment, what you mean is this is a person whose brain um, is... And character is is really well developed yeah. to the point that they can make good decisions most of the time yeah. based on information that they're given um, because they they have morals and ethics they have an understanding of of ah. circumstances and people um, and they make the right decision because they have good judgment yes and they make the good judgment means you can make the right decision when the evidence or the circumstances are somewhat ambiguous. If it's crystal clear cut circumstance, you don't need to be a person of good judgment to make a good decision. The good judgment, the reason we use that descriptor of someone is because we see them make wise and good decisions despite contradictory or incomplete or um, ambiguous scenarios. And so if I, if I map that through to the discussion we're having now, the problem we identify as humans who are sinful, but also are endeavoring to be agents of God in the way of Jesus, is that we recognize our lives have some ambiguity. Are we evil and sinful? Yes. Are we good and holy and part of God's holy people? Yes. That's an ambiguity that where, where there can be real tension. When one focuses ex- so much on the um, exact detailed records, it's super easy to be discouraged by the feeling that there will always be something in those records that looks bad, that, that is damning. Um, and I use that word deliberately in this context. Um, but if God is a God of good judgment, then what we're doing is placing our faith and our trust in the fact that despite our lives being ambiguous evidence, we trust God to make a good judgment. That's an interesting way to think of it. Um, I was going to refer back to the story where Abraham is discussing with God the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham is saying, hang on, God, would you really destroy this evil if it meant the loss of some non-evil, some good? And God admits, no, 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 I really do value good. And I I would actually spare the entire city for the sake of, and it gets down to a a meager amount of, of good people. I think that's something really helpful for us to keep in mind, because certainly from an Adventist perspective, Adventist traditional sort of development of these ideas, a lot of people fall into the trick of thinking it the other way around. God would destroy a great amount of good if it meant that he could eradicate a tiny bit of evil. Mm. And, uh, but, but can you see how wrong that is? Um, it, it seems to me that it, that is inconsistent with the picture of God as painted. And I, I specifically speak of Abraham, but it's a broader theme. Yeah, even in the most violent parts of the Old Testament, which I have a problem with, um, it's still, as you said, the other way around. Mm. It's still always a small amount of good people sacrificed to destroy a greater amount of evil. Mm. Uh, I have a problem with the whole idea of um, the arithmetic of all of that. Yeah. Um, also, again, understanding the care of God, but that's another discussion for another time. But you're absolutely right. Um, the idea that God would destroy a large amount of good to eradicate a small amount of evil is entirely unbiblical. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it occurs even once. And so if, 
If I can build on that, what I'd like to perhaps close with is an observation about the way this impacts the way that I would choose to live my life. If I were to focus on the exact detailed records, there's, there's more conventional or historical kind of accounting picture of judgment that Adventism really does, um, did develop a deep emphasis on and, and has clung to, then what's the end result of that? I'm going to be paying regular attention to the things that I have failed at, um, to the sins that I have committed. I'm going to be trying hard to, I'm going to be praying for forgiveness of those sins. I'm going to be working with myself, with God, with the Holy Spirit, through the grace of God. I'm going to be working to try and um, undo the harm and minimize the, um, you know, eradicate is a word we might use, you know, give up these sinful behaviors. Um, and that is going to lead to me trying to become, uh, in a, trying to be in a better position to face this judgment. And the result is that I will be trying to avoid things that are harmful to others and, and to myself and, and are generally against the way of God. That would be a reasonable outcome if that was the outcome. What if I choose that I'm not going to focus so much on this minutia, details, infinite details, um, sort of accounting picture of judgment? I'm not going to be quite so concerned about having to give detailed account of every single sin and action that I've committed. But I'm going to trust that God is going to be looking with his good judgment at the body of evidence and he's going to say, hey, uh, well done, good and faithful servant. If, if that's the picture that I have, then the result is I'm going to be trying consistently to go out of my way to align myself with God's purpose, with God's mission uh, exemplified through the way of Jesus. I'm going to be trying to be an agent of God's kingdom. I'm going to be trying to share the love and the blessings. I'm going to be thinking of passages like, you know, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. I'm going to be going out of my way to look for opportunities to be God's hand and feet. Essentially, what I'm saying is my state of mind might actually be different and my picture of judgment might be quite different. It might even be heretical in some ways. But the end result of the life I live is going to look rather similar in terms of its impact on the world. And that says something to me. It says that there, there is room to ponder these different pictures, pictures of judgment. If you could have a different picture of judgment, but end up empirically leading to the same kind of life trying to be focused on, then, then there hasn't, you know, I don't think that, that you've destroyed too much along the way. Uh, and that's, that, I hope I'm right in identifying those as being the valid or the ideal outcomes of any of these pictures of judgment. Um, I think if the, if the pictures of judgment you have lead to outcomes other than those I have described, then, then the fruits are, are kind of revealing the truth that it might not be the most helpful picture of judgment. Mm. Yeah, well, I think that's a good insight to um, perhaps wrap up today's discussion. Yeah, let's do it. Um, normally, it's Cam that would be that would be giving some of these. Yes, I, I was. I got halfway through that sentence and realized I don't really know how to wrap up. No, well, the podcast episodes because Cam always does it. Cam does such a good job. Let's try. And again, apologies, listeners, for the way that this episode has um, had a glitch. I think uh, we've actually been pretty lucky and somewhat blessed to have had so many episodes of this podcast glitch free. Uh, to be honest, given the way that we do this from different locations. Um, around the place. Mm. So um, thanks for enduring and putting up with us this time, having a technical error. Um, hopefully it's been 
a useful conversation, even though it's occurred almost in two parts. Uh, certainly for us in real time, it's definitely occurred in two parts. And um, we're interested in your thoughts and comments. If you've got any, you can email us at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. Don't forget, if you're finding this podcast interesting, you can always share it with friends. Um, you could perhaps even share it with people in your physical Sabbath school group, if that is something that you do on a regular uh, basis. And um, we look forward to you joining us next week for another episode.